As Dennis said, my name is Jamie. I serve as one of the pastors here at MCC. And if you're watching online, we're glad that you're here. If you would open into your Bibles to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. We'll be looking at a very uh, famous story. As we continue our series entitled Astonished. And this series is a series where we've been walking through the different attributes of God. And we've got a, a big idea statement about this series. It comes from A.W. Tozer. And the big idea of this series is this. Tozer writes, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Our worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. So we've been structuring our service in such a way that uh, we lead the service with teaching on an attribute of God, and then the second half of the service is spent us responding in worship to this God that we have just heard about and learned about. So that's the, the goal. Uh, the attribute today is the suffering God from John 11, the suffering God. And Dennis uh, told me about a, a quote from Paul Claudel, French poet, author, wrote, Jesus did not come to explain away suffering or to remove it. He came to fill it with his presence. And I, I, I just want to confess something. As Christians, sometimes we have a tendency to act like pain is not, not there. And we think that receiving Jesus into our hearts makes everything fine. No suffering, no problems, rainbows and cookies all the time because I got Jesus. The truth is not this. We just happen to get the Prince of Peace while we walk through pain and he walks with us. So, before I start preaching a pre-sermon, uh, let's get after the text. I want to read this entire passage. This is John chapter 11. I'm just going to read this passage. I encourage you just, if you feel led, to just close your eyes and, and picture this story, almost like a movie. Picture this story. John 11. Now a certain man was ill. His name was Lazarus of Bethany. This is the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So... When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then, after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking a rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So... When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here, and he is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Abba, we thank you for your word. I thank you for the realness and rawness of your word. And Jesus, I thank you that you are willing to be with us when we suffer. And Holy Spirit, I invite you now to come and give us eyes to see Jesus and to worship him. Holy Spirit, come. And teach us. We yield to you. And we thank you for your words. And it is in the mighty resurrected name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Three-part outline to this message. Number one, the first part is to talk about how God suffers. Second part, why God suffers, and then turn to practicality, how to suffer well. So how God suffers, why God suffers, and how to suffer well. All of those questions are in this text. That's why we're going to walk through it. That's why I took time to read it all, just so it doesn't feel like I'm jumping around in the text so much. So first part, how God suffers, how God suffers. And I want to make just three important biblical affirmations that the Bible teaches us about how God suffers. Number one is this, God does suffer. And I'm I'm making that point because 
you might be tempted to think that God doesn't suffer. Uh, I want to make sure that we understand that God does suffer. This is an important foundational point. Uh, No other religion has a God who suffers. Did you know that? Uh, Only Christianity has a God who suffers, and specifically suffers for his creation. Allah does not suffer. The concept of karma is so impersonal that there is no concept of suffering with people. Only Christianity uniquely has a God who suffers. You say, okay, Jamie, where do we see this? Well, let's look at the text. Verse 33, John eleven thirty-three. We see Jesus coming to Bethany. It says this, when Jesus saw her weeping, this is Mary, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and he was greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. These are real emotions. This is not fake. Jesus is having real encounter with real emotions and real suffering. And he's seeing Mary weeping. And he sees these Jews, which in this culture, they were paid. (laughs) These are paid mourners to come and mourn for you and with you. And he sees these Jews weeping. And he sees everything going on. And he is greatly troubled. This is real stuff happening deep down in Jesus, God himself. Jesus is God. He's not just some guy. He's not just a prophet. He is the the second member of the Trinity. We've been talking about this. The the Trinity itself. So once we say that, that Jesus experienced suffering, now we say God suffered. Jesus is God. In fact, throughout Scripture, and I I can't do all of this, But Scripture tells us regularly that God experiences these emotions and suffers. Here's just a couple that we have. I'm not going to be able to go through all of this. But Genesis 6.6 is after, right before the flood, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. Psalm 78, in discussing the people of Israel as they left Egypt to go to the promised land, that they were stiff-necked towards him. They grieved him in the desert. They provoked him to anger. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. When God heard what they were doing, he was full of wrath. Ephesians 4, Hebrews 10, other passages. Hebrews 10, trampled underfoot the Son of God and outraged the Spirit of grace. Everybody say outraged. Outraged. This is strong language about God. He does experience suffering. And the Trinity is such, we've talked about this, that the Trinity is one God, three persons, and they are relationally connected. So it's just like in your family. If one member of your family is suffering, what happens to you? You're suffering. It's, it's part of relational intimacy and love between persons such that the one that I love, when they suffer, I suffer as well. So when Jesus is weeping, the Father and the Spirit are experiencing suffering in that moment. And it's just important that we see that because of the triune God. That God himself is suffering, not just the human part of Jesus that we try to get away with, right? Well, he was just a human right here, so that's why he's weeping, because he's weak in that moment. No, no, no. The triune God is suffering in this moment. He weeps. Secondly, not just that God does suffer. Secondly, God suffers with his loved ones. Verse 33, he saw her weeping. He saw the Jews weeping. He was deeply moved in his spirit. And even the Jews later in verse 36, they say, see how he loved him. The Jewish people seeing Jesus, their automatic understanding is, look how much Jesus loved this man, that he's weeping this way. So for us, I want you to understand, when you are suffering, God is with you. And not just sort of that weird Job friend with you. (laughs) It's just kind of there and then going to teach you something in that moment. But he weeps with you. 
the triune God weeps with you. So much so, because you may say, well, this is a little bit emotional, Jamie, here. You're kind of exploiting the story. It's a little bit much. And these other passages, you know, there's, there's some other things at play contextually. Well, the very title of Jesus given in Isaiah 53 is he's called the suffering servant. One of the titles that God takes on himself as Messiah is the suffering one. That's significant. Titles in scripture are significant. They say something about the very nature of that person. And he's called the suffering servant. So Isaiah 53 is the classic text. Verse 3 itself says, he was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. We esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. So when you are standing in front of the casket of a loved one who has just died, Jesus knows exactly what that feels like. And not only has he experienced it himself, He stands and weeps with you as you stand in that moment. And it's important that we understand that. He is acquainted with grief. You know those moments when you go to a funeral? We've already had two funerals just like in the last four weeks. And you have these moments where you walk in and you're like, it's so surreal. This person was literally alive just a few days ago. You just saw her, right? And there's a sense of just like, what is this? But he is acquainted with grief. He is no stranger to funeral homes. When your heart aches because there's relational dysfunction in your family where words have been spoken in such a way that they wound so deeply that you think to yourself, will my, will my relationship with this person survive? When that happens, we have a suffering servant who was despised and rejected. We have one who is a man of sorrows. When we hear about unspeakable, horrific, criminal acts against people, And we think to ourselves, how can this be? There is one who understands this pain. He's a man of sorrows. He was betrayed by a close friend. He was abandoned and alone on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God suffers with his loved ones. Third, God allows suffering. God allows suffering. Look at the text. This is verse 5 of John 11. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, everyone say so. Okay, these conjunctions get it. (laughs) This is a significant conjunction, friends. So means because of this fact... What follows the so is based off of what happened before the so. Not to get too grammarly, nerdly on here, but... So follow me. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And because he loved them, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. This is a problem for our minds, isn't it? He loved them. And when he heard that Lazarus was ill, my mind goes, he loved them. He's the healer. He's been healing people in town. He healed an entire town. Lazarus is ill. Because you can make the argument, well, he healed an entire town, but he didn't know those people. And you got this one that he loves. The, The assumption is, in my human mind, the assumption is he loved this one. He's really gonna heal this one, right? So, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Let's not play. Let's not play. Let's not play. God allows suffering in our lives. And that does not diminish his glory in one bit. 
You may say, how does that make sense, Jamie? I don't know. And someone who tells you they do know is lying to your face. I do not know. I, I was talking about this with Mark earlier. People have talked about theodicy, have discussed the whole concept of suffering. How can God be real and there's suffering? People have discussed this for millennia. And there are no easy answers in this sermon, but this sermon presents one of the things to think about when you're thinking about theodicy. So I'm just making sure we all understand, I'm not, I'm not solving any problems. I'm just saying, you, let's think about this when we think about this subject of suffering, okay? God allows suffering. Now, interestingly, Jesus actually gives an answer. Look at verse 4. As we ask the question, why? Jesus actually gives an answer. Verse 4, he says, When Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. Here's why. Here's why this is happening. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So God is glorified in this suffering somehow. Look at verse 14. Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there. <laughs> I was glad I was not there. Why? So that you may believe. So now we got glory, and we have belief in the mixed. Now verse 25, talking to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? I want you to see there is a connection between suffering, belief, and glory. And these are significant, massive concepts, but they are connected. Jesus is saying this. Suffering, belief, glory. That somehow this suffering has something to do with belief, and the believing has something to do with glory, and somehow the suffering and the glory are connected. <laughs> he connects those three. You say, okay, what's the connection? Let's look at part two. <laughs> Let's look at part two. We're going to answer that question. Why? Why God suffers. A couple affirmations. Number one, God suffers because of unbelief. The only other place in Scripture that we see that Jesus wept, the only other place other than here in John 11, is Luke 19. Now, that's not to say that he doesn't weep in other places. I'm just talking the actual Greek text. The only other time we see Jesus wept is Luke 19. Here's the scripture. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, that is Jerusalem, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Now follow me. Jesus is not weeping over Jerusalem in the same way that he's weeping over Lazarus. He weeps over Jerusalem because of the unbelief of Jerusalem. He actually says over Jerusalem in a parallel passage, this is Matthew 27, he says, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Jesus is looking at Jerusalem, his people, and he knows that they are going to reject him. This is towards the end of his life, right before the Passion Week. And he's weeping because he knows that Jerusalem will reject him. They have unbelief. They do not believe in him as their Messiah. And he understands that because of that, Suffering is coming to the city. We see the fulfillment of that in A.D. 70 when Rome comes and ransacks Jerusalem, destroys the temple, and there's great pain and great suffering. Jesus is grieving over the unbelief of the city of Jerusalem, the people in Jerusalem. And you can hear this pain. He, he, he equates himself with, with a female chicken. God, if you would just come to me, I would, I would cover you. I would protect you. I would gather you and protect you under my wing, but because of your unbelief, you are going to experience tremendous suffering. Jesus is grieving over people who are rejecting him. I, I, do you see that? He grieves because 
people have unbelief towards him. And he knows that that unbelief is ultimately going to lead to destruction and death. That's an important point. Sin and unbelief lead us to destruction and death. That is the biblical worldview. And God grieves because of that reality. We choose sin, (laughs) we choose unbelief, and it brings destruction and death. And he grieves for that. Why? Because God created everything. And what did he say? That's all right. This is okay. It's, you know. Is that what he said? He said, this is good. This is really good. This is exactly what I wanted it to be. I think of like this, like let's say a world-class painter spends months painting something. Just something amazing and beautiful. And then some little kid of his, right, comes in like la la li 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 and paints over it. What what is that famous what is that painter gonna think? I this was so good. Now and that's such a it, it pales in comparison. Take that to the infinite degree, something that is holy and perfect and good, that the creator of the universe from eternity past create he spoke it into being. It's perfect. And then humanity in sin and unbelief, breaks it. Do you see the suffering just inherent in that fact? Imagine the painter. Imagine the eternal, glorious, holy painter of all things. And now creation is fractured and broken. So God is suffering because of sin and unbelief. Our sin, let's just take it away from the abstract here. My sin and your sin causes God to suffer. That is a fact. Our unbelief, our failure to acknowledge him as God, brings suffering to God. Why? Because our sin and unbelief ultimately brings us destruction and death. There's there's more to say, but I need to keep moving. Secondly, not only does God suffer because of our unbelief, God suffers for our unbelief. He doesn't just suffer because of our unbelief. God suffers for our unbelief. Look at the text again, verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. This is... This, these words refer to anger and agitation. Sometimes deeply moved sounds somehow poetic, right? It was deeply moved. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of people deeply moved after the Super Bowl game. But that's not what this means, okay? He was angry and agitated is the language that's being used here. Agitated. His soul was stirred up. Why? Because Jesus saw the ugliness of sin and unbelief in death. He stands at the cave of the one who he loves, and he is stirred to anger and agitation because he sees the ugliness of death. He sees the ugliness of our bodies that are designed to live forever. Now, because of sin and unbelief and destruction, the fall, Genesis chapter 3, now we experience decay and death, and he hates it. He hates it. And Jesus sees this tomb, and I can imagine that in his mind he's thinking to himself, all of my creation, all the people that I've created will be just like this if I don't do something. There's a, there's a moment, you have to see the parallels in the Gospels. Jesus is doing things, and there's always this shadow that's coming. The cross and the resurrection are shadowing and being foreshadowed by everything that happens in the Gospels. And so when Jesus sees Lazarus and this tomb, he's thinking to himself, I imagine he's thinking to himself, all of creation All of humanity will be just like this if I don't do something to solve that. So here's the solution. 1 Peter 2. 
He committed no sin. This is Jesus. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in turn. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins. Everyone say, our sins. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Hearkening back to Isaiah 43, of course. Peter writes, My unbelief and sin nailed Jesus to the cross. Your unbelief and sin nailed Jesus to the cross. The unbelief and sin of the entire world nailed Jesus to the cross. Jesus' dying on the cross has everything to do with your sin and my sin. The gospel good news is not that we suffer because we've, we've rebelled against God. The gospel good news is God has suffered for us in our place because we disobeyed him. Are y'all hearing me? The gospel good news, Christianity says, you're not suffering because you did this and so now you get this suffering thing. And I'm going to get to that in a second. Christianity is not saying some sort of karma thing. Oh, I experienced this bad suffering. All of that's happening because of that one bad thing I did because I lied to that one person over there. Nope. Christianity has something to say about that, but what I'm saying is the gospel says not because you did this bad thing, you are going to suffer. The gospel says because you have done this bad thing, God suffers in your place for you to rescue you from death and destruction. That's what God is saying in the word. I, God creates us, we rebel, and he enters into that space and dies for us on the cross and suffers for us. And here's the deal. You know, with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, you might think, well, the reason he's suffering is because he loved them, and, you know, they had a really good relationship, so they were good friends. You know, that's why, that's why he's suffering. The Bible tells us that God so loved us, even when we were his enemies, he died for us. Listen, this is not about you being, like, because you're good and lovely, God died for you. No, no. Actually, when you were his enemy and against him, he died for you. This is the text. Romans 5, 6 to 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Follow me. It's not because you're good that God suffered for you. And it's not because you're lovely and impressive and he needs you. He suffered for you willingly because he loved you even when you were against him. That's the gospel good news. So let's get practical. Part three. How to suffer well. Because <laughs> everything I've said, like, it's helpful, right? And it's good and true and right. But practically, how are we to suffer well? I have five verbs that we're going to walk through to help us to suffer well. First verb, number one, believe Christ. <laughs> In the text, Jesus is looking at Martha. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And that is the question for us. Suffering forces a response. My question to you is, when we suffer, when I experience suffering or you experience suffering, what are you believing in that moment? Are you believing, well, I did this thing, that's why I'm experiencing this? Or are you believing, well, God must be mad at me, that's why I'm having to deal with this? What do you believe? Because 
according to Jesus, when horrific, tragic mourning and grieving is happening, Jesus is framing death in, do you believe me? I am the son of God who has died for the sins of the world. So the first question is, do you believe Christ? John 20, 31, John sums up the entire book of John by saying this. These are written, all these words that I wrote in this gospel called John, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So number one, believe Christ. Number two, expect suffering with Jesus. Not just believe, but to expect. Mary, Martha, Lazarus, they were loved by Jesus and they still suffered. The disciples were loved by Jesus. Many of them were martyred. Sometimes we think to ourselves, because we live in a free, a country that values religious freedom, sometimes we are blind to the fact that the global church is experiencing tremendous persecution. And anytime we're going to walk around and act like we're persecuted here, which I, I don't want to negate any, um, any threats to religious freedom, but it's nothing compared to what our brothers and sisters have experienced around the world and since the beginning of Christianity. So just to say, we should expect suffering. And before you say, well, Jamie, prove it. John 15 Jesus said, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. And in the passage that Dennis led us off in the call to worship, beloved, it's 1 Peter 4, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes. When, not if, when. When it comes. So I just I want to state again, Christianity, unfortunately, especially here in North America and in the West, we have presented Christianity as some sort of get out of suffering card. Just accept Jesus, ask him into your heart, everything's fine. He will bless you, he will take care of you, you will not experience suffering. And even if we don't say that explicitly, we are saying it implicitly. So we should expect to suffer with Jesus. Third, believe, expect, also hope. Because <laughs> number two is going to stink if I stop there, right? Hope for future glory. Look at verse 40. Sorry, I got to get to it. Verse 40. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said these on the count of these standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had come out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth, Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. If you believed, you would see the glory of God and the glory of God in the passage is the resurrection of Lazarus out of the tomb. So follow me. When Jesus says, I told you, if you will believe, you will see the glory of God. The glory of God then in context is Lazarus come out and a guy who is dead is now alive. So cells that were dead and atrophying and odor was beginning to be emitted from this dead carcass the mind was no more the heart was not beating anymore the cells were dead and Jesus says Lazarus come out and now cells that were dead are alive so follow me didn't I tell you if you believe if you believe you will see the glory of God and then the very next thing is resurrection in Lazarus resurrection <laughs> Now, we all know this. What happens to Lazarus? We don't know when, but what happens to Lazarus years later? He dies, right? He dies again. So this is just a shadow of what? The eternal resurrection to come. 
So when we see Lazarus coming up, this is a first fruits sign of what's coming in the end. If you believe, you'll see the glory of God. Here's a shadow of it. It's called resurrection. Lazarus is going to die again. But the end of time, when Jesus returns, there is full resurrection for all who have believed. If you believe, you will see the glory of God. By the way, that looks like resurrection. Lazarus dies in time. Resurrection of all people who believe. And that's hope. <laughs> Listen, resurrection is the only hope that you actually have to navigate suffering in this life. It's the only hope. <laughs> because if I just experience suffering, then I die, then I'm no more, and then what was, what was all that for? If I suffer, then I die, and then I cease. There's a cessation of life. Then what is this? See, all suffering will be swallowed and consumed and defeated in resurrection. Revelation 21, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. God will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is going to happen. Listen to me, this is going to happen for those who believe in Christ. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Literally, the tears of our suffering are wiped away by Jesus in the new heaven and the new earth. Romans 8, 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 2 Corinthians 4, this, these are light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. My present suffering and your present suffering will pale in comparison to the glory that is found in eternity with Christ. And that does not negate the very real and present suffering that we experience is just to say, yes, this suffering is real and it is not good and it is tragic and it is painful. It is very, very real. But in the light of eternity, this very real thing will pale in comparison to the glory that is coming. That is what the Bible is saying. It doesn't negate the one. It only glorifies the eternal one. And that's where we get wrong. <laughs> We overrealize eschatology. We, just, we, we go over here so much that we will look at someone in their pain and say, no, nah, it's fine, it's fine. Let me be Job's friend right now. It's fine, it's fine, it's good. No, it's not good. It is not good. And at the same time, three millennia into eternity, we're not gonna look back. And if we do look back, it will pale in comparison to glory. This is what's so hard about the fact that God is omnipotent, he's all-powerful, he's omniscient, he knows all things, and he's a God of love. But when I'm present in suffering, I have a hard time taking these attributes of God and tying it together with my suffering. And the reason that is such, because if he's loving, why doesn't he fix it? And if he's all-powerful, why doesn't he fix it? If he's all-knowing, why did he let me go through it? But the reason I struggle with that is because you and I, we, we don't have the attribute of eternality, which is to say that God is present at all times fully. So God is fully present. He is able to see this mosaic of brokenness and tearing, but he's able to see all of it in such a way that he sees the good, 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 good that is coming, even though right now I cannot see it. And listen, that's not to explain away but there's coming a day where we'll be able to look back from his perspective and see, oh, these are the good things he did through this. He didn't cause it, but he worked through it in such a way that I wouldn't trade that for anything because of what he did. And listen, that doesn't explain all that there is with suffering. Because there are some tragic things that happen that have no corollary that we can see. And so I want to acknowledge that. But that doesn't mean that in eternity future, we won't be able to see some thread where he is working for good. In fact, Paul said he works 
all things for good. That's what the Bible says. Okay, fourth. Pray. We're to pray for the body of Christ. It's interesting. We can't talk about the suffering God if we don't talk about the fact that when the body of Christ suffers, that is the church, Jesus himself is suffering with us. And it's theologically true. When Saul is going out, who we also know as Paul, going out to persecute the early church in Acts, he's on his way to Damascus. And he's blinded, falls off of his horse, and he hears a voice. And as Jesus says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul goes, who are you? <laughs> and oh, by the way, I'm going to Damascus to persecute those heretics called Christians. And Jesus said, I'm Jesus, the one whom you're persecuting. So when Saul is persecuting believers, he's at, Jesus sees it as you're persecuting me. Are y'all following me? The persecution of believers is the persecution of Christ. That's how he sees it. So we're to pray for one another as the body of Christ. So it's not just like if I'm suffering, everybody pray for me. No, when others in my family, when Naj is suffering, I want to pray for Naj, right? And when I think about believers in North Korea, I want to pray for my brothers and sisters in North Korea who are suffering. Or Myanmar, or anywhere else that you want to talk about. To pray. So how do we suffer well? Let's pray for ourselves. Let's pray for each other. Fifth and final. To worship through groans. I don't have time. (laughs) Worship through groans. Let me just say this. And worship team, why don't you all come on up? Worship team, come on up. Worship through groans. Uh, Something interesting about the, the worship culture in North America is that when we come, sometimes when we come to worship, everything is up, everything is happy, and it, it's almost like spiritual Novocaine to, to, to dampen the fact that we're suffering. And so many people actually come into a worship experience and they're actually expecting to feel better. I want to submit to you, yes, worship can be a blessing. Yes, worship can bring healing. Yes, yes, and Amen. Also, worship includes lament and groaning for the return of Christ, that he will come and make all things right. And I'm, I'm taking this from the concept of groaning. The theme of groaning finds a thread, and I don't have time to do this, but it starts in Exodus, that God hears the groaning of his people in Egypt, and then he acts. And then in Romans, he tells us that all of creation is groaning for the people of God To be revealed, what, the end time. All of creation, natural disasters, earthquakes, tsunamis, natural disasters are the groaning of creation for Jesus to make it right. And then Paul says, we ourselves are groaning inwardly as we await the adoption as sons. And the Spirit himself intercedes with us with groanings. So when we worship, it is not always yay, 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 yay. But it can also be, Lord Jesus, come quickly. I need you walking through this valley of the shadow of death with me right now. I need you right now. I know that you're suffering with me theologically. Jamie Jamie preached on it, so I, I... I know it here, I want to know it here, and I will groan as I worship until I know it here. The mark of a mature Christian is, can I worship in lament even in the midst of my pain? I've got some conclusion questions for small groups I've sent those to small group leaders, so you'll all be discussing that this week. Last thing I want to say, we're going to open the table during worship, Lord's Supper. And what's crazy about the Lord's Supper is the literal establishment of the Lord's Supper by Jesus happened in the context of him being betrayed by one of his friends. 
The Bible says, on the night when he was what? Betrayed. The table, the literal context of the establishment of the table is in the context of personal relational betrayal. Further, the reason there's a table is because you and I have been purchased by Jesus, his broken body in the bread and his shed blood, the cup, for us. So when we come to the table, it is a table of joy and celebration that the suffering God has suffered for us in our place. We take the bread, remembering his suffering of his body, broken, whipped, scourged for us. When we drink the cup, we remember the suffering God who shed his blood for us. The table is both a place of joy and suffering. It is a, it's a microcosm of everything I've been saying. So as we worship, in fact, let's stand. As we worship, and as you come and just freely come to the table as you feel led, we want to sing and to respond and to take the elements. And I encourage you, if you want to be on your knees during worship, go for it. If you If you want to clap during worship, go for it. If you want to weep during worship, go for it. But let me pray for us. And we're going to worship this suffering God who has suffered for us and with us. Jesus, we come before you. And we thank you for your great love for us, even when we were against you. And I thank you that you are a man of sorrows. You are acquainted with grief. You are not unaware of the pain and suffering that we experience in this life. And we thank you that because of your resurrection, there is a down payment on eternal glory for those who believe. So we place our faith in you, Jesus, fresh. And we give you this time to worship you, to lament, to grieve, to celebrate, to be astonished. Holy Spirit, help us worship. Groan within us with worship. And all God's people said, amen.